in American culture, women are taught to be perfectionists. And Black women, well, we have the Black tax. We have to be twice as good in order to get to the same place as white people who are half as good. And for Black women to recognize that because of that burden, we have become the most excellent. (laughs) And we need to recognize how powerful and talented and skilled and valuable we are. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that celebrates, elevates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman currently based in Spain, and I'm not only a podcaster, but I'm also a business strategist. As a business strategist, I help Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their skills into viable and sustainable businesses that can take them successfully abroad, making them feel professionally fulfilled and also financially abundant. If you are interested in building a business abroad, then I welcome you to download my Build a Business Abroad guide at the website flourishintheforeign.com and also learn more about my business strategy services at christinejobe.com. If you are interested in moving abroad with intention, I have a guide for that. It is so important that when you go abroad, you are going abroad with intention, meaning you are cultivating a life well lived abroad. If you are looking to build a solid foundation for you to go abroad, sustain yourself abroad, but also thrive abroad, then download the Moving Abroad with Intention guide also on the website flourishintheforeign.com. So I'm really excited to announce the last cohort of 2021 of the Moving Abroad with Intention course. I am going to run it again this year and I'm super excited. It's going to be five weeks live video discussion to help you create your bespoke game plan to not only get you abroad, but to help you craft a game plan that will have you abroad sustainably and have you thriving abroad. If you have not read the testimonials of the first cohort, you can go ahead and do so. The link is in the description of this episode and on the website. Read what the fantastic, fantastic ladies of my first cohort said about this course. So the Moving Abroad with Intention course will start on October 16th, and I will have one day of pre-sale this time. One day one day of pre-sale. So if you're interested in purchasing the course at the pre-sale price, you need to make sure that you have October 6th written in your calendar. No worries. I will send out an email and let you know. After October 6th, the course will be sold at the regular price. There'll be no more pre-sales in 2022. So if you are interested in getting this Moving Abroad with Intention course, and if you want it at the pre-sale price, then this is the time to act. So make sure you have October 6th written in your calendar and join me for the Moving Abroad with Intention course. This incredible award-nominated labor of love is still, yes, labor nonetheless. So please support this here podcast. If you love this here podcast, you can do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash flourish foreign. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. You can cash app the podcast via cash app at dollar sign flourish foreign. You can purchase a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wish list, which you can find on the website flourishintheforeign.com slash support. I also want to thank all of you that have written reviews of the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Make sure that you are sharing this podcast with all of your friends, all of your family, across all of your social media channels. All right. 
on to the next episode. Today's guest is Wendy, and I really enjoy Wendy. Wendy and I have collaborated before, and I really love her energy. I think through her story of going abroad with the company, becoming a digital nomad, and then repatriating, she really shares some key insights on all these different stages of living abroad emotionally, the things that you go through and how to persevere, and how to pivot. I am super excited for you guys to hear this interview. So I will let her tell you all about it. My name is Wendy C. Williams, and no, not that Wendy Williams. And I am 52 years old, and I'm currently living in Portland, Oregon, but we'll talk about the Three years I spent living in England, and then the additional two years after that, that I was a digital nomad. It was such a life-changing experience. I literally experienced parts of me that I didn't know existed. And I expanded in my own very real experience of my personal power in the world. And I stepped into the embodiment of something I always felt when I was at home, which was that I am a citizen of the world. I am grateful that I was born in the U.S. There's a lot of privilege that comes with that, of being American, especially when you are in another country. And the United States is a very, very, very convenient place to live. There's conveniences everywhere. But because my family was always so racially mixed, I really always felt more allegiance to being human and being of Earth (laughs) And embracing the whole planet instead of just being super focused on being American. Well, I think I got the travel bug from my mom. We were constantly having road trips, and my mom was never afraid to have a really big road trip. So I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. And on my father's side, there's Jamaican ancestry. So I'm like the living embodiment of the movie Cool Runnings, Jamaica, and a very cold place. And so I I grew up in Vancouver, Washington, which is really close to Portland, Oregon. It's right across the river and is considered a suburb of Portland, Oregon, even though it's in the state of Washington. And that's where I grew up until I was 18. And since I graduated from high school, I've lived in seven different states because I always wanted to live abroad. In fact, my first big leap out of the Northwest was to follow a boyfriend to Mobile, Alabama, right on the Gulf Coast. And I thought to myself, being a West Coast girl, really liberal, really educated (laughs) Moving to the Deep South was going to be as close as I could come to living overseas and still be in the United States. And that's why I decided to do it. So I started experimenting living in different cultures, really, in the United States before I made the leap to living overseas. I asked Wendy if she attended university and if she did, if she had the opportunity to study abroad. I uh, did not go to college right after high school, even though I should have. I actually think it was racial discrimination that I didn't. In high school, I was always in the scoring in the top 10 percentile in the nation in national tests. And I was always one of the top either five or 10 kids in school as far as my grades. And so I was really visible academically, but I had no support. 
not from my family because of my religious upbringing. My mother happened to belong to a religion that didn't emphasize college. And then the teachers didn't support me in pursuing a college degree. I think it just literally didn't occur to them, which was a racial issue because I grew up in an extremely white area. In fact, I would say it was probably 99% white where I grew up. And so I dabbled in college after I was working full-time after high school. I got about a year's worth under my belt while I was working full-time. And so I dropped college until I moved to Kansas And I had a really short window where I didn't have to work. And I thought, now's the time to get my degrees. And by that time, I had spent years in the corporate world as a consultant as well. And so I worked my college degrees like I worked a job. I was a grown adult. I was in my early 30s. I was quite professional in the tech industry. And so I knocked out two degrees in three and a half years. I asked Wendy to describe to me what her journey to moving abroad looked like and if there was a turning point in her life in which moving abroad really became a priority. It's really interesting. There wasn't a turning point that I was conscious of. I think it was always just in me. I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness, and those are the people that knock on your door with the watchtower and awake and hand out the magazine. The stories that we were being told were stories of other Jehovah's Witnesses all over the world. I remember I knew what Malawi was when I was like six, some African nation that I had no prospect of going to, but I knew what was going on there because it was talked about all the time in my church, what Jehovah's Witnesses were doing all over the world. And then my family was really mixed racially. And then married into the family was Black, White, Filipino, and Cuban. And my mother brought us intentionally to a racially diverse branch of the Jehovah's Witnesses Kingdom Hall. So I was always around lots of different races. And that was normal to me. I always called it growing up in the Rainbow Coalition. My family was the Rainbow Coalition. And my mom put us in environments where we experienced people of different cultures. And my mom loved a road trip. And so as a kid, I fell in love with the big road trip and always loved traveling. And so it was really kind of woven into the fabric of my being as a child, the idea of traveling all over the place. So I would say about 10 years before the opportunity showed up, I had an idea in the back of my mind that I wanted to move to England. I don't know where it came from. I didn't spend a lot of time studying England. I didn't know a lot of people from England. It was an intuition, I think. And I was working for a software company within six months of getting that job. They opened a European division and they were sending people over for two weeks at a time. And they made an announcement and said, we'd like to send people over for longer to export our company culture in the new European office. We want things to run there like it's run in the U.S., are there any volunteers? And I immediately raised my hand. So I was the first one. I think everybody else had families and thought it would be more difficult. So I was the first one that committed. And so the company started the paperwork. It took two years after I raised my hand before they were ready to send me. But because I was committed, they did the work with the government of the UK to be able to have work visas that allowed people to stay for two years. So I raised my hand, the company got their act together and sent me for a two-year secondment, which turned into three years. 
But I just knew in my heart and in my head, I had a really strong intuition that I wanted to live overseas. I was always curious about the world. I then I never wanted my life to be small. I wanted adventures and I love taking risks. And so when I had the opportunity, I just jumped at the chance. So I was helped over by a company and they had a relocation specialist, but my company was a small company. So I didn't get a lot of the big perks that people that work for really large companies get. I had a lot of friends that worked at Nike and was asking them, because Nike sends people to different countries all the time. And I was asking my friends, what is it like? What are the kinds of things that we need to, to pay attention to? And their experience was like caviar hors d'oeuvre compared to a slice of salami on a Ritz cracker that I got. <laughs> it was a big difference. But I was able to talk to people that I know working at companies that had similar experiences of what I should look for, what I should ask for, what I should look out for. I asked Wendy to describe to me how did she eventually settle into life in London? So I wasn't so smart. I call it death by a thousand paper cuts because what I didn't realize was that the things that I no longer thought about that were automatic as an adult, I had to relearn. So it took me weeks to figure out how to send a piece of mail because in the United States, the mailbox is attached to your home or at the end of your driveway or in a box at an apartment complex or a subdivision. In England, their mailboxes are like one to an entire neighborhood. Like you often have to drive to find the nearest mailbox and uh, and it could be overgrown by ivy and you wouldn't even see it. And it's like the shape of a fire hydrant, maybe two feet taller, but not very tall, not as wide as what we see in the United States. There's the, there's these little columns that are easy to not see. And so that was my introduction to, oh, yeah, the world works really differently than the U.S. And those conveniences that I was used to may not exist. It took me forever to figure out how to make phone calls. (laughs) Okay. Doing mail, making a phone call. They made a change in the history in the U.K., where you didn't have to put a one in front of the number or you had to put a zero in front of the number. And at this a year, which was 2014, they did not tell you whether you needed a zero or a one. You just had to figure it out. And it's because life is catered to people who grow up in one place and know everything about it. So there's all of this stuff that isn't said that people that are native to the area just know and foreigners would have no clue until they figure it out. So there was just a ton of little things that I just didn't know how they functioned in the UK. And so I had a lot more stress because I had to figure out the basics of how to live and understand things that I hadn't had to think about since I was like five years old. So so it was really stressful. I was pretty isolated. I worked a lot. And it wasn't until I had a conversation with a French colleague who said, hey, Wendy, you're working too much. Let me tell you a story about how I used to be like you, realized that companies are not as loyal even though you're a hard worker and you have one more year here, take advantage of it and see the world, which snapped me out of my workaholic ways. And I decided that every bank holiday, Europe has more holidays than the US, that I would go to a different country. And so so the first year, I didn't do a whole lot. I was overwhelmed, stressed worked all the time. 
and was just trying to figure out how to function and get used to functioning in a different society with different ways of doing everything. After the first year, I moved from the city where my office was and I found my sweet spot in Richmond, which is a really uh, well-to-do suburb of London. It's like on the outer ring away from London. So London is a hub and there's a big circular freeway called the M25 that encircles London and a huge amount of suburbs around it. It's an enormous area, but it's all inside of a ring. It's all inside of a big circle that's encompassed by this freeway. And I was on the outer edge of the circle away from the center of London. There's a lot of celebrities living in the area, huge parks, lots of shopping. And I found a house and they called it a house. In the United States, we would have called it like a townhouse or maybe a condo. But in England, it was a full-blown house, everything smaller. It was the most incredible location. I was half a block from the Thames and the boardwalk along the Thames. I was a half a block from a little boutique alley with pubs and shops and restaurants and really cool places to go. And then another half block from that boutique alley was the main street, the center of the town that I was in. I settled in Twickingham, England. It doesn't get more English than that. Twickingham is where I lived. And so it was so convenient. I could walk to the train station. It was a seven minute walk. So I would walk to the train to get to work and to get into London to visit clients. Uh, So I was doing a lot of walking. You didn't need a car. And it was just beautiful and convenient and fun. And so it really took me a year before I started really enjoying England. And I knew it well enough to get around and start exploring and finding where to get my black girl hair supply. It was literally like an hour long journey on the trains for me to get to the big warehouses where I'd have all the black hair care supply that I needed. Then I started enjoying England. And it was after I made the commitment of every holiday to visit another country, I ended up visiting on my second holiday, Venice, Italy, and found the man that would become my fiance. And then I started spending four and five day weekends in Venice, Italy for the rest of the time there. I was curious to know how British work culture was different to American work culture. Oh my gosh. That, that was so fascinating to me. So I worked as a project manager at a software company in the consulting wing, professional services. And I was used to running projects for our most valuable customers in the U.S. So whatever the biggest sales deal was, I would get that project. And it was normally huge projects. And I'd have build these relationships with all these Fortune 500 companies and huge banks and all kinds of businesses all over the world. Our customer roster was absolutely incredible. So I did project management. And what I noticed immediately was that the attitude towards me as a Black person in the context of a corporation and doing work and being in a leadership role was completely different in the UK and in different European countries. Cause I ended up working in multiple European countries. So in the United States, I was never questioned as an expert, meaning the expert of the software. I was never questioned about being the leader of the projects I ran. I was never challenged with the office politics or strange dynamics as far as running those projects and being the person that guided every bit of the work. Never an issue in the U.S. 
when I arrived in the UK, my first project was with Lufthansa. So I was spending more time in Frankfurt, Germany than I was even in England. And Germany is very hierarchical. And as an outside consultant, I was at the bottom of the totem pole as far as importance. And most people can't get into management or be a director or above unless they have a PhD in Germany at corporations. It's a really interesting social dynamic in the workplace. And so I was used to just coming in and running things with projects. And that was simply not the case at Lufthansa. (laughs) The person that was in charge of implementing my software wanted to be in charge of me. I would have people not showing up to meetings because someone more important asked for their time. I, I had a hard time being listened to even when I was speaking. I was actually quite shocked. It was a bit of a culture shock. And I found that in Europe in general, and I always tell people when they would ask, what's the difference between my experience being an American working in software and being in Europe and living? And I would tell them in the United States, 80% of my interactions with people are colored by race. Race plays a factor in the communication, the attitudes, the assumptions, everything. And about 20% of my interactions in the United States, that's not an issue. It was flipped the opposite in every country in Europe. About 80% of my interactions, nobody cared that I had brown skin. It was irrelevant. The only time there was some discomfort was maybe 20% of the interactions. But the racism was so dramatically reduced. It's like a part of me that had lived being vigilant about my own intelligence, about my own value, about my own credibility in the United States was freed up to pursue other things that were personal to me. So it was like I got back a huge part of myself because I was no longer preoccupied with not being assumed to be a criminal because I have brown skin, like is assumed in the U.S. What was fascinating is that being a woman in a leadership position was more of an issue in corporate life in Europe than being Black. So I kind of swapped one big issue for another. So it was, being a woman, it was, people were more hesitant to allow me to lead and would sometimes defer to a male colleague, assuming if I had a male colleague in the room, that that was the person in charge instead of recognizing that, no, I'm actually the leader of the project here. And that fascinated me because there are a lot more European prime ministers and leaders of countries that are female, but that is not the way it works on the working person's level. The dynamics with the sexes in Europe are really a lot more traditional than they are in the United States. I'm always curious about politics because I feel that if people aren't aware of geopolitics before they go abroad, living abroad makes you keenly aware of geopolitics. And so I was curious to know if Wendy felt that American politics still affected her while she lived in the UK and whether she felt affected by British politics as an American in the UK. Honestly, not really. So uh, significant things happened while I was in the UK. So Scotland had a referendum wanting to secede from the United Kingdom while I was there. I had really interesting conversations with Scots on trains And so it was nice to be there during a piece of history. There were also some bombings 
in London when I was there. One of the things that stood out to me while I was going back and forth between the UK and the United States, because I would come back to the United States two or three times a year for work things or for just vacation. And what I noticed was real life has very little to do with what we hear in the news and that the news is a major exaggeration intended to pull on emotional strings in order to get people to keep watching. Mostly it pulls on fear and shock and exaggeration. So while I was in England, Donald Trump started campaigning and the whole country was being gaslit for the first time on a national scale because of Donald Trump and his campaign. Gaslighting became a thing. It became a word people understood what it was. My master's degree is in counseling psychology. I was watching a person on the news verbally and emotionally abuse an entire country. And then in the United States, the culture became really divisive to the point where I was afraid to come home several times in 2017. I was afraid to come back to the United States. The level of violence and divisiveness is not necessary. It's not necessary to function, even though people who never leave their city and never leave their state and never leave their country don't understand that it's not necessary. They think that the way they live their life is the way life is, but it's not. And you know that if you allow yourself to have a wider point of view by experiencing different cultures. Hey, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please consider supporting the podcast by either becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash flourish foreign tipping the podcast via cash app at dollar sign flourish foreign or buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign or purchasing a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wish list at flourishintheforeign.com slash support. I also want to invite you all to check out the plethora of resources that I've compiled for you all at the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. You will find a book list to help you get, stay, and thrive abroad, as well as the build a business abroad guide and moving abroad with intention guide. All right. Let's continue the show. So I asked Wendy to describe to me what her experience has been like dating abroad. I can tell you that before I moved to England, I dated a lot of white men. And that's a little uncomfortable for me to say, but I'm chalking it up to my childhood because I grew up in places that were almost all white, like no black folks anywhere. <laughs> and that was my childhood upbringing. And my stepfather was white. So from seven years old to 14 year old, the primary father figure that I had was a white man. And my father was never really in the picture. So when I became a teenager and started dating, I started dating white guys. And I often felt really guilty about that. I was uncomfortable with it. And I, I think, to be honest, I'm still a little uncomfortable with it. But it's, it's a sexual attraction issue. And I just decided to be honest about it, even if it's upsetting to people. I'm just going to be honest about it. One of the things that was fascinating to me is that London has the highest percentage of interracial relationships with a black woman and a white man. And I knew that moving over there. And I thought, this is going to be fantastic. I'm going to be seen as an equally attractive person in London instead of being the last choice 
in the U.S., which is how I felt growing up. I felt like I was at the bottom of the barrel of attractiveness, not because I didn't think I was attractive, but because I didn't feel like men saw me as desirable in the United States because of all the racism. And so when I I expected to have a very different experience when I came to England, especially spending time in London. And so I'm still to this day a little surprised that I never had a boyfriend. I also didn't try. I didn't really put myself out there. And I never took overt action to find dating partners. I was never on an app. I didn't hang out in pubs a lot. So it was less likely to happen. But when I was in in Venice, I wasn't looking for a man either. I was just on vacation with a friend. And I was sitting in a, a restaurant for the locals because the tourist restaurants are really bad. And we found out where the locals were. And we went to that restaurant and they had picnic bench style table. And we were sitting on one end and my future boyfriend walked in. He told me he saw me. He had a warm feeling come over him. And he asked his friend if they would mind sitting next to us at the end of the picnic table. And his friend said, sure, decided to be his wingman. She's a woman, but she was a really good wingman. And the four of us sat together and had, Italians are loud and like to have a lot of fun. And we were louder than the Italians. We were having so much fun together. And that was the start of a really incredibly romantic story with me and my Italian. So it was interesting being in Italy because the Italian men had no problem flirting with me. I actually felt more feminine because I was seen as desirable more often being in Italy because Italian, you know, Latin men. It was interesting. I never expected to have an Italian boyfriend because I just assumed that Italians are just like the French. They all cheat. They all like to have multiple women was my assumption. That was my stereotype. And my boyfriend was really different. He was very shy. He was introverted. He wasn't some gorgeous pinup Italian dude. He was a little older and more normal looking. And he was not flirty with other people, although he had a lot of female friendships. He became very trustworthy. And that's why we became a couple. The first two months we were together, I was wondering if he was mafioso or selling drugs or something. And I'll tell you why. He never had to work. He would wake up whenever the hell he felt like it. First thing he would do is go to the cafe and have some espresso and chat with friends that would meet at the cafe who also were not working a regular job. And then (laughs) he'd go to the grocery store, pick up some fresh things, make lunch, and he would always make it for both of us. And then he would watch TV or play his guitar. He was a professional jazz musician. And he'd watch TV or play his guitar. And then he would go out for aperitivo, an afternoon wine, and socialize again. And then he would head off and play at the jazz club for two hours. And then he would go out after the jazz club and we'd go for drinks and snacks and stay out till one, two in the morning and then come back and repeat. And so I was like, why does this guy always have money and he never has to work? Like, this is really interesting. And his whole life is built around playing, literally playing, either playing music or having fun somewhere and drinking and socializing. And I'm like, I've never seen anything like it. Can I be you when I grow up? 
And I ended up finding out that he owned real estate. He was partners in three businesses where he was a silent partner and his other partner did all the work and he had rental property and he was part owner of the jazz club that he was playing at every night. Because of his personality, he had made financial arrangements where when he was a business partner, he never had to do the day-to-day work. Again, I was like, can I be you when I grow up? (laughs) And so he had crafted his life in a way that he could have maximum freedom and no obligations, really. And he visited his mother once a week, every week, and really took care of her and was very, very social. So that was a really um, interesting experience for me because Italians are more open and kissy and friendly. It's bachi, bachi, bachi everywhere you go. <laughs> chow, 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 chow all the time. And people are constantly getting groups and hugging and kissing and talking and drinking together. It's like that's life in Italy. I was curious to know more about Wendy's experience as a Black woman abroad. I will tell you part of the result of having my energy freed up not being worrying about defending myself or worrying about microaggressions or being assumed to be a criminal, I've been, without even thinking, it wasn't a conscious thought, but my ability to make money expanded. So I got promoted a couple times. I even got promoted when my bosses didn't want me to be promoted, but because I was clear that I wanted a higher level position It ended up happening for me anyway. I was making more money than I ever thought possible. It was C-level salary amount. I mean, it was quite a bit of money. And that was unexpected and increased my capacity for financial wealth and well-being. So it was like I understood what I was capable of in a different way that would have never happened in the U.S., which was pretty incredible. And because I was making so much and that I committed to explore Europe because it's so easy to fly and cheap to fly everywhere in Europe when you're in London. So I decided to live life to the fullest. So I would go on adventures. I I would take my boyfriend to Paris for his birthday. And we'd spend a weekend in Paris. We would go on road trips through Tuscany and stay at Agriturismo's and um, drink the wine of the region and and really have these amazing, authentic Italian experiences. And then I would have him come see me in London and we would go see shows on the West End and stay in a hotel in Soho and just explore Borough's Market and London. And I had the time of my life. I had the time of my life. It was so expansive and so much fun and the fulfillment of so many wishes When I would go shopping, it didn't matter whether it was a man or a woman. They'd say, oh, you're American. What are you doing here? And I'd say, oh, my company brought me over. I'm working for a software company on assignment. I've got an Italian boyfriend. I fly between London and Venice. Every single person was like, shut up. Stop talking. Your life sounds too good. matter whether it was a man or a woman, they'd be like, what? You're kidding me. Your life is awesome. It was pretty funny. Everybody pretty much was like, you've got to be kidding me. Just stop talking right now because that's ridiculously awesome. And it was. I asked Wendy to describe to me the circumstances in which she decided to leave the United Kingdom. So things were going so well with my job that I was taking care of our our most valuable customer in the entire company in America or the UK 
I had that customer and I had a really beautiful relationship with them. And I was really stepping into running the professional services department in the UK. And so my bosses were really happy that I kept things running really well in England. And they forgot that I was only supposed to be there two years. So I would have reviews and they would say, hey, everything's working really great. Yeah, let's keep you here. And my boss just kept saying, yeah, we're going to keep her here, forgetting the financial impact of keeping me beyond two years because some UK taxes kicked in after two years. So it took them a year in the United States to figure out that I was costing them way more money the third year than I had been the previous two years. And that's one of the reasons why I stopped working for the company was because they said, it's way too expensive to keep you in the UK. We're going to have to bring you home. And at that point, I had a title where there were a ton of people in the United States with that same position. And I knew that they wouldn't have room for me, like one more person at that level. And so I thought, wow, if I go back home with the same company, I'll have to change my career to stay with the company or I can figure out how to stay in Europe. And so I started interviewing for jobs and basically the job that would have kept me there would have made me more of a workaholic and I wouldn't have been able to have the freedom that I had to spend as much time in Italy. So I came back to the United States. I took another job at a different company only had that job for six months. I got fired for the first time in my life. So I had spent 25 years in the tech industry and I'd never been fired, but I was elevated enough that there was a regime change in power. And I was a director at the time and the new person brought in their own people and I was out and their new person was in. And so at that point, In January 2018, I decided to run my own business and I wanted to get back to Italy. And so I started building an online business and devised a plan to rotate between Southern California, Venice, Italy, and Portland, Oregon, with occasional stops in London because I had friendships established in London. And so in October of 2018, I started that nomad lifestyle. I was a independent consultant. I was able to work remotely. I was making really good money with this company, even though I didn't really like the company. But I was independent. They didn't care where I was. Everybody was working remotely. And so I planned out an entire year of the digital nomad life. So I bought my airline tickets for an entire year going back and forth between Italy and LA and Italy and Portland, because in Italy with your American passport, you can live there for six months without paying taxes. So you can live and work in Italy for six months without paying taxes, but you can only be there three months at a time. So I go three months and then three months in LA or Redondo beach, California, then three months back in Venice and then three months in Portland, and then three months back in Venice. And I learned how to buy airline tickets really cheaply. So I could get an airline ticket from LA to Venice for $400 and go back and forth and back and forth. And so I did that for a year until my relationship fell apart with my Italian. And then I came home and then COVID hit like nine months after that. And so my digital nomad lifestyle stopped. But before that, I I planned it out. I saved money. I got remote work and was rotating and loving it. And I will go back to it after COVID clears up. I asked her what her process and journey of repatriation has been like for her. It's been really difficult to be honest, to come back to the United States because um, the United States became more clear to me living on the outside of it. 
So I could observe it from a distance and I was no longer in it. It was like, you can't stop smoking with a cigarette in your mouth. And I had the space in living in Europe to take the cigarette out of my mouth. And then I was like, this is what it feels like to not have the cigarette in your mouth. And that was the revelation about American culture. It's like the saying, a fish doesn't know what water is because they're always in it. And when it came to the racial dynamics, I believe I came to an enormous amount of clarity having the space to be away from it. And I saw things differently. And since I've been back, I came back July of 2019. And I personally have evolved so much. Coming back to the United States was painful, dealing with racism at the level that I have to deal with again. And I was not in a good state. My relationship had fallen apart. And my lifestyle that I had carefully built and was really loving this digital nomad lifestyle came to a screeching halt. And that was all really actually emotionally traumatic for me. So I spent a lot of time recovering, but in my recovering process, I found my power as I chose to heal myself. When I was in England, I got a really big ego because I was making a ton of money and I was living this fabulous international life. And I was flying around to all these different countries and working in all these different countries. And I got a really big ego. When I came back and I worked for six months as a director and then I was fired, I immediately got laid low. And one of the greatest gifts that my ex-fiance gave me is he really loved the virtue of humility. He would comment on it in people when he saw it. And after I left Venice and, and we broke up, I started sitting with humility and I thought, uh, I want to embody humility without diminishing myself. And so I, I created my own definition of humility that did not require that I be less than. And that was simply saying and embracing that at all times, at Every moment I'm a beginner with something and I don't know. And I choose to embrace the joy of discovery instead of feeling shame for ignorance or feeling less than or any of that stuff. I'm just like, my humility is I get to have the adventure of discovery. Yes, I don't know. And I'm not going to assume to know. I'm not going to assume I'm better than or uh, this, that, or the other thing. I'm living from the point of view of joyful discovery with everything. I asked Wendy to share some advice for all of you who are interested in moving abroad to England. First, I'd say in American culture, Women are taught to be perfectionists and black women. Well, we have the black tax. We have to be twice as good in order to get to the same place as white people who are half as good. And for black women to recognize that because of that burden, we have become the most excellent. (laughs) And we need to recognize how powerful and talented and skilled and valuable we are. Our work ethic and ability to deal with life and be resilient and be powerful people is way beyond the common person on the planet. And I don't know that Black women understand that about themselves. So Black women that have chosen to pursue excellence and success in whatever form that is for them, You are light years ahead of your colleagues, light years. So the first thing is recognize how supreme you are. (laughs) 
and and really own that, really own it. And then I would say, run, don't walk to live in England. Yes, England has a lot of problems, but you will deal with far less racism in England than you will in the United States. Racism is still there, but it, it will be dropped dramatically. And you have no idea what will come out of you when your emotional energy and your mental energy is allowed to be focused on your own life and your own joy and your own fulfillment instead of office politics and microaggressions and daily racism in the United States. So run, don't walk. If you have the opportunity to live in England, you can stay in England on an American passport without getting a visa for, I think, three months at any year given year. If you want to stay longer, you have to have special visas for special reasons. So do your research. But try it out. Take a sabbatical and spend two months in England living there. Know that when you're visiting a place, it's very different than working in a place. So for instance, I love, love London as a visitor. I hated working in London. I hated it with a purple passion. Do not wear high heel shoes in London. Everything's cobblestone and it'll eat up your heels. So if you have beautiful high heels, don't wear them. You have to walk everywhere. The tube is huge. There's just tons and tons of walking. Just have comfortable shoes and forget the heels. If you want to look cute and fancy, bring a bag, put your heels in it, put them out when you're in a restaurant or you're walking into the office. But getting there, forget it. Let go of the American culture, the way we socialize and isolate a lot and embrace the culture of whatever country you decide to visit. In Italy, know that Italy is actually a young country. It's less than 200 years old. And previous to being unified as Italy, it was separate city-states or separate little empires. And so the different parts of, of Italy still have different dialects, different cultures, and different attitudes. So if you're an American and you think of Italy, the Italian-American experience we have is from the poorest part of Italy. It's from Sicily and Naples in the South. They have different food, different culture, different way of speaking, different way of living than the middle of the country, the Tuscany area, and completely different than the northern part of Italy. And you go from south, super poor, to the north where it gets super wealthy. And so know that Italy is a mix of very different cultures with their own dialects and their own style of living and socializing and connecting and having relationships, very different regionally. And, and understand that you have American privilege. It was embarrassing to me the entire time. This is how bad my privilege, my American privilege was. I was exhausted by my job. It was really eating me a lot. Um, even though it was, I was making a ton of money, it was sucking the life out of me. <laughs> and I didn't know it at the time, but it was. I knew to make true connections, I needed to learn how to speak Italian. And speaking foreign languages is not my strong suit. I have a lot of strengths. Foreign languages are not one of them. And I deliberately chose not to put my mental energy into learning Italian and instead focus my energy on my job. That was obnoxious American privilege. It kept me from connecting more closely with my Italian friends. And they were always the ones having to do the work to talk to me. 
that was obnoxious American privilege. Be conscious and clear that when you leave the United States, you come with a ton of privilege. Do the research. Ask about common living questions when you decide where you want to go. So ask people, how long does it take to get your cable put in? How long does it take to find a place to rent? Understand that in other places in the world, it's really common to rent places that already have furniture in them, unlike the U.S., where if you find an apartment, it's usually empty. In Germany, they take their kitchens with them, cabinets, and move it from apartment to apartment. So ask about mundane things because you never know when the quirkiest, strangest little thing is completely different than your lived experience. And you need to be aware of it before you pick a place to live. And just so just open your mind to know that it's possible and real and worth always, always, always worth the experience. I asked Wendy, what is her definition of wellness and how that definition, that concept has been influenced by her experiences of living abroad? Mm, Oh, what a great question. For me, the ultimate goal is uh, self-love, self-respect and self-honor and courage and compassion with purpose. It's not about finding the right career. It's about finding the right way to be that brings joy, brings you so much joy that it overflows and spills out to people around you and you have a positive impact to others. That to me is the ultimate life well-lived. It's coming to the place where you're willing to be the one that loves yourself more than anyone else. And not only do you love yourself, but you respect yourself enough to be willing to be this person that's solely responsible for your financial well-being. You care enough about yourself and honor your body to be the caretaker for your physical well-being. You honor and respect yourself enough to develop the courage to have boundaries so you have good emotional and psychological well-being. It really is a path of self-discovery and courage building in order to have wellness in every aspect of your life. Thank you so much, Wendy, for sharing your story. You can learn more about Wendy by going to her show notes at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash Wendy. As you guys know, as I've mentioned before, Flourish in the Foreign is becoming a seasonal podcast. So that means we will not be having continuous drops. It also means that in the future, seasons will not have 50 plus episodes in them. No. Not like this season one. Even when the podcast goes on hiatus, you can still stay connected to Flourish in the Foreign because I am launching a Flourish in the Foreign community and I'm really excited about it. I envision a space in which it is intentional and heartfelt and really centers wellness. I envision a place full of support and really good resources. This is the first time I'm creating this kind of community and membership. And so it is going to morph with your opinion, with your help and your guidance. But as it stands now, I'm going to launch this membership and we're going to have chats with past podcast guests and some moving abroad experts being either tax professional or relocation specialist or what have you. So I'm really looking forward to creating a space where it can be safe and it can be a warm and amazing space. So if you are interested in learning more about the membership, knowing when it's going to launch and being a part of the founding members, then go ahead and sign up for the membership waitlist 
I'm really excited about it. All right. Thanks so much to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. If you're in need of music for your next creative endeavor, he is definitely your guy. You can find all of his information in the show notes of this episode. And please remember that it's not about getting abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I'm sorry that you don't feel comfortable being a kept woman. I do. Keep me. I want an easy life. I want to be tender. I want to be loved. There's nothing wrong with going through a season of being cared for. And I think sometimes as black women, we don't even know how to allow that to happen. And then other black women would be like, oh, out of fear, like, oh, there's there's something wrong with that. But our Caucasian counterparts do it all the time. And they are allowed to have seasons where they sit back and relax and explore other things and talents and gifts. And when we do it, we, we have to take on the burden of, but where is the labor? <laughs>